Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hi, I'm Julie Gunlock, Director of the Culture of Alarmism Project at the Independent Women's Forum and your host for today's Working for Women podcast. Today, I'm here with Hank Campbell. Hank is the president of the American Council on Science and Health. The council was founded in 1978 by one of my idols, Dr. Elizabeth Whalen, to support and further evidence-based science and medicine. So basically, Hank's organization was fighting fake news before it was cool and hip to fight fake news. Prior to joining the council, Hank was the founder um, of the Science 2.0 movement, which has been an amazing force in democratizing and demystifying science for millions of Americans. Hank has been published in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Wired, and many more. Hank, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on the program and for the introduction. Uh, it's always <laughs> nice to hear a shout-out to uh, Beth Wheel, and I think she inspired a lot of us. She really does, particularly... You know, it's a, it's a real movement, women in science now, um, and trying to debunk a lot of the myths out there. And she was doing this, you know, for much longer and before uh, many of us were getting into the field. So um, she was a real leader in that field, and I, I do always try to recognize her. So, again, it's, it's, it's thrilling for me to have you on and to have um, someone from your organization on. I'm a big admirer of what you do. Um, so let me, let me just um, – we're going to talk today – about Rachel Carson. I know this is a subject that both you and I have written about and are interested in. Um, for those listening in, this might not be a name that you're familiar with, but certainly for those who follow the environmental movement or are involved in the environmental movement, this is someone you definitely recognize. She is Rachel Carson is the author of the 1962 landmark environmental book called Silent Spring. Um, and again, I just want to give just a little bit of information on her. Um, Rachel Carson was a biologist. Um, in 1962, she wrote the book Silent Spring, which argued that man-made chemicals like pesticides and other chemicals used in manufacturing uh, were threatening human health and the environment. Carson suggested that man-made chemicals affect the processes of the human body in, quote, sinister and often deadly ways. Uh, now, in 2002, a couple of years ago, there were a number of glowing articles about Rachel Carson because environmentalists were celebrating the 50-year anniversary of her book. Um, but that has died down again. Uh, I, you know, you still see references to her, but a couple of years ago, you know, Rachel Carson was in the news again, and recently I've seen her name pop up again, so I thought it was time to talk about Rachel uh, Carson and to talk about her book. And, and the reason I've seen her name pop up is PBS, um, is running a documentary on Rachel Carson, a glowing documentary on Rachel Carson. So again, I think her name is in the news. I think people are seeing reference to her. So I thought that it was important that uh, we, again, get the truth out about Rachel Carson and her book. So, Hank, maybe you can give us, I've, I've given kind of a quick sort of elevator speech about Rachel Carson, but maybe you can give listeners a little bit more information about her and her book. Uh, sure. I mean, Rachel, as you said, she, she was a biologist who was very concerned about environmental issues. She had worked for Fish and Wildlife, uh, and then she had already written a, a, a best-selling book. So later in the 1950s, uh, after she had expressed some concern about pesticides and things like that, the Audubon Society had said, you know, you should, you should write a book. And she went to uh, a publisher, and they had really, originally she had a, a co-author because they wanted to they wanted to kind of make sure that this stayed 
as a, an evidence-based thing. Uh, Edwin Diamond, who was a Newsweek senior editor, and things fell apart between them pretty quickly. And after the book came out, he was he was one of the early critics, along with every scientist, because it really it's 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 regarded as a scientific work now because uh, culture has skewed a little bit in in environmental academia has skewed uh, a little bit left. But at the time, it was it was dismissed by everybody who had any expertise. Right, right. What what, is, what did it do? What did her book do to the environmental movement? What, what did it mean to them, and how did it sort of? I mean, I would I would say you know it, it launched a thousand movements within the within the environmental movement. I mean, I think after that book came out, you had a real focus on things like DDT and other pesticides and other uh, you know and other chemicals. What what did how did it sort of encourage the environmental movement in this area? In the modern environmental movement, it really created it, because prior to that, there had been more of a biology movement. You wanted to, you wanted to control disease at the biological level, so that's where it levels. So you had things like eugenics and, and those efforts. And it was only later that it became about uh, you know, population control and worries about food. And, and, I mean, it was such a contrast, because we, coming out of the 1950s, we were really entering into a golden age of, of yeah. science fiction. We, we had... We had unlocked DNA. We had uh, discovered uh, coenzyme Q, and and we were gonna we could solve aging. We had you know polio was eliminated, and all these other diseases were going to be gone too. So we were entering the 1960s in this really really great period uh, where all of these things were going to be solved, and science was going to do it. And then you had this thunderclap where suddenly you have a million copies of a book being sold that said. No, science is actually killing the environment, and man is not uh, mature enough to understand all the the residual impacts and things like that. And it got two science panels called. Uh, at that point, it isn't that she was suddenly advancing science. The environmental movement wanted to be impact players, so they've tried to duplicate that since then, where everybody wants to have that kind of impact, where you'll be talked about 50 years later, regardless of the science. You want to be known for the the amount of effect that you had on culture. And I think that's a real weakness in the environmental movement in modern times, because Rachel Carson would obviously be a fan of GMOs. Somebody, somebody who was against chemicals yeah. would be a big fan of, of a biological solution. And, and the modern environmental movement is just against everything. Yeah, it's interesting. She would also probably be for nuclear power um, because it is a clean power source. I mean, there's there is it's very interesting that you say that, that there is this real disconnect now. Environmental movements just sort of sweep up everything um, that they see as you know a, a, as a danger. Where you know when you when you look at the the sort of point of environmentalism to improve the environment, um, there are many technologies out there that can do just that, that they're against just because, um, it, I guess, in, in their view, it's, it's progress or it, it's a technological advance that they don't approve of. You mentioned, though, a lot about we have been talking about the environment, but she talked a lot about this dystopian picture, right, of a, that, that we, you mentioned like the, the, ni- the early 1960s, that we were really going into this really exciting time. Uh, progress and environmental and and technological advance, um, but she paints this really kind of frightening future where um, the environment is so poisoned by chemicals that no birds sing. Right, that that was the point of Silent Spring that we're going to kill all the birds. Um, she also said that one in four people would die from cancers caused to exposure um, caused by exposure to these chemicals. Um, Hey, can you tell? You know, I I feel like at IWF, and I feel certainly with your organization that. Um, we we are we often tell good news stories like hey don't be so freaked out 
out, there's some good news out there, right? Um, tell us a little bit about cancer rates in this country. Um, well, ca- you know, well, cancer rates, except for, you know, obviously we're, you know, as a health organization, we're against smoking. So if you're out there and you're listening right. to this and you're smoking, just stop. But outside those sort of lifestyle, you know, let's, let's call them lifestyle disease of behavioral stuff, smoking and excessive drinking and things like that, the cancer rates have absolutely plummeted, despite the fact that we really have more chemicals than ever. So right. chemical use has increased, right. And, and this is the odd disconnect with sort of the exaggerated claims of today is people, people in the environmental movement today know less about toxicology than Paracelsus knew in 1600. The, the dose makes the poison. These trace amounts of chemicals that can be found were biologically engineered to express all of that stuff out without any issue at all, no matter, no matter if you do it for 10,000 days in a row. It makes no difference. But people don't seem to get that. They think if you can detect any sort of pathogen that it's going to lead to a pathology. And that's just incorrect. And, and it's because of this legacy of Rachel Carson, and some of her claims are fabricated. There's no, there's no reference for her claim that 90 species of birds were dying off due to this stuff. I mean, if you, if you read through the bibliography, it's a lot yeah. of the same sources, and, and none of it's evidence-based. Right. right. Um, let's talk a little bit about the human cost. I want to stay on this trajectory that we're on, um, you know, uh, talking about the environmental movement, but also the human cost of Carson's propaganda, which I call it propaganda at this point. As you've mentioned, her her book has been debunked. I mean, there is one scientist who does a line-by-line refutation of her book, which is a fascinating read. But, you know, um, let's talk a little bit about the human cost, how Carson's book fed this fight to ban chemicals to get help fight mosquito-transmitted disease, such as malaria and Zika and West Nile virus. What has been the human toll? What, you know, what is, what's uh, the estimates on people who, you know, talk a little bit about the bans on DDT, how DDT was effective in America in spring in the 1950s, and how that stopped, and, and what, you know, what the result of that has been. It was, it was really effective. This was invented in 1943, and in 1944, when the Nazis were leaving Italy, uh, they destroyed the infrastructure. So you had a lot of lice. You had no sanitation, things like that. And, and this, this had been tested. It was the first time that the British rolled it out, and they went in and they, they sprayed Italians with this, and typhus basically disappeared in, in a few days. It, it was this miracle of, of modern chemistry. And in the 50s, it was shown to be effective in lots of places. They used it in Japan, uh, any place where you had a lot of tests, and so, of course, malaria is this, is this holocaust that happens in these developing nations. And we have banned it. But the odd, thing, the odd thing is our EPA bans it in the United States, but our EPA also writes the guidelines for how you can spray it in other countries inside homes. So our EPA has one law that's on the books for us, but they completely have to recognize that in other countries, DDT is not only safe, but they're spraying it inside people's homes. Right, right. I, I, you know, the, the, it's interesting when you think that the, the chemist, Paul Herman Mueller, um, who sort of discovered uh, the insecticide qualities of DDT, he won a Nobel Peace Prize, I think, um, for or I'm sorry, Nobel Prize in, in, in physiology or medicine for his discovery of, of DDT um, as effective against these vectors. So it's interesting to think think of how DDT is thought of today. And then when it was discovered, because it was so effective, it was thought of as this sort of miracle substance that could, as you say, do away with typhus and malaria and really scary items or um, vectors. And, and now some of this, look, it was overused in some spots, right? There was Sure. Farmers today are very, very evidence-based. They're very scientific. The big data that they use is terrific. But at the time, 
they figured if something, if X amount was good, the next time <laughs> two would be better. That, you know, that luckily we've gotten away from, but that would have happened without demonizing a particular chemical or having 500 million kids die from, from malaria and things like that. I mean, we Are they using DDT? Has, has it resurfaced? I mean, what is the situation now with DDT? I know that that there was sort of this, it was banned, um, I don't remember what year, was it 1982 or 72. maybe it was before that in the United States, but what is the, what what's the current situation with DDT? Is it used in some of these countries, developing nations that still have problems with malaria and other diseases? It is. The World Health Organization recommends it. They, uh, okay. uh, you know, there was a period of time where it was unsure, and and obviously the EPA was actually created to prevent that sort of thing from happening again. This ban on people think that the EPA was created to to find these problems, but in reality they were. This was a political solution to a scientific concern, uh, and it was basically a, a bunch of people in Congress who wanted this thing gone. So EPA scientists had actually cleared DDT, and then the, the head, uh, the acting head of the EPA, had, who had been appointed, went ahead and, and banned it anyway. But that was, that was over the, the science objection. So it's still used in these other countries because the World Health Organization recognizes their you know, nets and things like that don't work all that well. There is no cost-effective solution that will still kill and, and these bugs and eliminate that kind of vector-borne disease. So they still use it. We write the guidelines to help them spray it in their homes, but it's never going to be allowed in the United States again. And, and, but there, there was a period of time, am I wrong? There was a period of time where DDT totally was not used by many other countries. I mean, it's sort of, oh, right. it went it, it, there was a period of time where many countries in Africa and in South America and in Asia were not using DDT. It has it has started to be used again. Is that correct? It is. Uh, you know, America leads the world in, in science and technology, and we have for, for decades, really. So when the EPA said this was something that was banned, it was just a matter, of course, that other countries would say there must be a good reason they banned it. But eventually, the international community said, this doesn't make any sense. The, the data doesn't show that there okay. is any harm. And malaria really spiked in, uh, upward in those areas, so then they began to use it again. Right, and there have been some estimates. I mean, you know, some some are hundreds of thousands, some say millions died be, because of that period of fear-mongering about DDT, the overreaction to ban DDT. And again, I think it's important to point out that we, in the 1950s, we had these um, programs to spray. My mom and dad talked about running behind the truck and, and sort of <laughs> playing in the gas, in the, in the cloud that was formed. Um, you know, and, and, you know, my dad always chuckles about all the, the, the fear-mongering about DDT because he says he must have drank gallons of it running behind those trucks. Um, and so, and, you know, there actually has been some, <laughs> there is some evidence that you can, that humans can ingest quite large quantities of it and not be harmed by it. Um, but it's interesting that those bans took place after malaria had essentially been eradicated in the United States. Again, it's one of these things where a very, you know, to use a current phrase, a very privileged group of people ban a substance that saved them um, and preventing these other people from using it. So it's, it's, really, tr it's really quite tragic. And we see the corollary now in, in the anti-vaccine movement where once polio and things like this are wiped out, you, you kind of forget what, what the dreadful exactly. impacts were. So it's easy to have that sense of entitlement and go, well, maybe, maybe vaccines had nothing to do with saving all these lives and they're not necessary. And it's a little bit of scaremongering, but it's a second order problem. These are, these are people who have benefited from the, this scientific advance and now get to take it for granted. Yeah, absolutely. We see, it's so true. We see that in the anti-vaccine vaccine movement. We see that again in, in a lot of agriculture um, practices, the GMO movement, um, or the anti-GMO movement, I should say. Um, people have 
you know, they could just go to their giant <laughs> or their Safeway or right. their Costco and get whatever produce they need. You know, they don't actually have to live on, you know, they don't have to grow their own food. And so um, it's very easy to be against these technologies when you really don't know what it's like to live without them. Um, I, I, I hunt and, and, you know, I've had people criticize me and say, you shouldn't do that. It's cruel. You should just go to the grocery store and, and get meat <laughs> like you're supposed to. And how do you respond to that? <laughs> they don't understand how food works. I know. I know. Well, I, I, look, we, we should do another show entirely on food labeling. Um, you know, I'm a mom and I, I do all the shopping and I hang out at school and I'm with, I'm around other mothers. And some of the things that I hear uh, at, you know, stand around other moms about how they're, they're so morally superior because they, you know, never feed their child processed food. Meanwhile, she's taking out a a bag of organic, you know, crackers that I guess because it has organic on it, she thinks it's not processed. I mean, even right. even the tomatoes and lettuce and cabbage in your produce section has been, yes, it's fresh food, but it's been processed in some way. It's been the leaves and the bugs have been removed and it's been rinsed off and sometimes it's been wrapped in plastic. I mean, processing is not necessarily bad, but I, we are getting way off our subject here, but you're right. There are just... There's a lot of um, misunderstandings of, of the food, of uh, you know, of agriculture, of food, of medicine, and a lot of it is fueled by really bad information, like Rachel Carson, which continues in our culture today to be seen as um, as a valid source of information. This PBS documentary that is coming out is nothing but a glowing uh, review of Rachel Carson and her book. I'm, I'm Deborah Bloom, who is a science reporter. She's actually she's on the science beat for a major newspaper. is in the is in the um, is in the documentary, and she's been you know tweeting glowing reviews about the documentary. It really does astonish me today that um, that Rachel Carson is still um, regarded as this this you know great science leader. Um, in our country. You said at the time of her book, it was sort of dismissed by the scientific community and, and then taken up by the environmental movement. That makes sense to me, but it really is frustrating to me to see her still receiving such praise uh, when, I mean, one read of the book, and you know that it's, it's it, most of it's, you know, exaggeration and some of it's fabrication. She never had to defend her thesis. She died in 1964. Right. So, I mean, when what, then someone, it's like, you know, being a rock star and you, you die early. You, you never have to be held accountable for anything that you do from that point on. So it's, it's a snapshot in time. I just wish that the, the public would recognize that it's no longer the 1950s. And we have lots and lots of different chemicals that are incredibly safe and they're responsibly used. Farmers are terrific uh, for, for not just cost reasons, but in 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 sparing land and using water efficiently, using energy efficiently. Agriculture is fantastic compared to what it was in the 1950s. Right, and course. I think people need to recognize that and, and sort of stop the war on on our food. Our, our food is safe, and it's a boring message to try and get out there to people. It's certainly not as, as sexy as uh, scaring people about every chemical uh, and, and every food product of the week, but it's an important message nonetheless. It, it absolutely is. Look, I, I think this has been a great conversation, Hank. I'm, I'm thrilled that you came on to talk about this. I hope this helps inform people a little bit more when they see, maybe they see mention of this on Twitter or if they see the show on PBS. Um, look, I, I, I think people need to use some critical thinking, uh, particularly when it comes to these really important issues um, like 
uh, like chemicals that can be used uh, to save lives um, and make food more available and less expensive. So thank you so much, for Hank, um, Hank, for joining us today. Thank you for having me on the program, Joy. This has been another edition of the Working for Women podcast. You can check other podcast subjects at iwf.org. Thanks again for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.